Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Because it's time. It's, it's time for reparations. So I'm sick of being a side Indian character. LGBTIQ rights are black rights. It's like, it's a form of cultural imperialism. The only thing I have in common with this character is that she's black. This does not look like me. I'm Gary Foley. I'm Francesca Ramsey. This is Amir Rahman. And you're listening to The Race Card. Welcome to Race Card. I'm your host, Ahmed Yusuf. And joining me in the studio today, we've got our two co-hosts, Amina Ziad and Arundhati Lexmi. Yay! Hey. Hey. <laughs> That was a bit awkward, but anyway, uh, before we begin, we'd like to do an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the Kulm people as the owners of the land on which we meet and pay respects to the elders both past and present. This land was never ceded and the process of colonization, occupation, incarceration, and genocide that began over two centuries ago continue to this day. Today we look at International Women's Day and censorship. Malcolm Turnbull's little dinner with Islamic Council Victoria and our feature discussion is on the history and present day of the Mardi Gras Parade. And now we're going to our new segment, Up Close. <laughs> yes, um, you've got 30 seconds to answer a question that I will ask. And yeah, so we're going to start with Amina. All right, Amina. <laughs> the question is, what is something that you know that no one else does. Time starts now. Oh, shit. Okay, that is heavy. Well, I'm going to start with myself because maybe that's what people don't really know. I have a thing for, like, even numbers. Even numbers, oh. like, multiples of two and five. So multiples of ten are amazing. Yeah, that's that's something I know. That no one else knows. Yeah, probably not. Yeah, I agree. Is that anticlimax? <laughs> <laughs> Felt very anticlimactic. <laughs> I, I was, I was like, hoping for something like spellbounding that was gonna make you feel very awkward. That's classified. Uh, all right. Anyway, that was anticlimactic. We'll see if Arundhati can oh. wet our appetites. So Arundhati, your time starts. N- what? Okay, I'm gonna. Th- I, I've got a better question. Yeah, all don't right. ask me the same. No, question. I'm not gonna ask you the same question. Okay. <laughs> um. So, what? Hmm. What is your guilty pleasure? Oh. Time starts. Like... You got time. Yeah. It's ticking. Oh, okay. 20, um, 25, Oh, I don't know. Um, okay, no, stop nah. saying words. Um, it's, um, it's, okay, Selena yeah. Gomez's new album yeah. is no longer a guilty pleasure for anyone. But I really, really liked it. I've said this before. I said this last year. But it's really good. Hands to Myself is not the best song. The best song is... Oh. What's that other one? Oh, perfect. Okay. Oh, no. Time's <laughs> gone. That's the best song ever written. What, what's the best song? I think it's Perfect. I think it's called Perfect by Selena Gomez. It sounds really scary and you can't listen to it alone. Perfect. Wow. Yeah, it's really weird. Anyway. Is it really weird? Yeah, it's Is re- it about Justin Bieber? 
No, I, I hope not. <laughs> That's like the thing that makes me scared about the whole album because I'm like, oh, do I really want to listen to like 13 songs about Justin Bieber? But it's so good. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. All right. No one's asked me a question? No, oh, one? no. No. No questions for no, me? No, let's think of one. Oh. You can't think of one on the fly. You have to have already prepared no. a question. Uh, I can think of one. Um, wow. What's something you did last week? That you never want to tell anyone, but you have to now. All right. Um, something I did last week. What did I do last week? Time's on. Dun-dun. Um. So I poured orange juice in my cor- cornflakes. What the hell? And that was kind of weird. That's really weird. Why did you do that? <laughs> I don't know. I was drinking. Cornflakes. I was drinking it, and does it good? Well, it was. <laughs> oh, no. Time's up. But, like, it was kind of okay. But, like, all right, so do you know how when you, you, you have cereal, um, normally you drink with, like, maybe juice, yeah? So I was... You were just trying to, like, cut out the middle... Yeah. And but the point is, like, that you have, like, two different textures. I know, but, like, I thought, why not just see how it tastes? So, like, what I did was I was almost <sighs> finished with my cornflakes, so I tipped a bit of juice in it. And, well, it didn't taste as good as I thought it would. Because, like, the the mix in the mouth tastes really good. So I thought the mix in the plate would taste really nice. But I didn't, and I ended yeah, up throwing out the It's just, like, kind of flake. crunchy orange juice. Yeah. But at least they're the same colour, kind of, so it doesn't they're, look But, weird. like, the milk, is, the milk is not the same colour. No, I mean, like, orange and orange. Like, cornflakes are kind of orange. Oh, maybe I should have done. Maybe <laughs> I should have gotten cornflakes and poured orange juice and had that as the milk Sorry, as a substitute. Just, it just reminded me of it's like having cornflakes in a nuclear reactor. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> no, it's like you know the overflow is pretty much the orange juice. <laughs> That's the fallout, true. The yeah. fallout is. <laughs> Sorry, that just came to my head. I also watched a lot of anime last night. So. <laughs> Maybe that's why. <laughs> sorry. Oh, but coming to the whole question of like, sorry, my time is up. But something I know that people don't, you just remind me. Caramel waffles and hummus. That is an amazing combination. I swear. It sounds caramel, better than it sounds. Caramel tastes better than it sounds. and hummus. No, waffles. caramel waffles. You should try it. Oh. Go to Starbucks. Actually, don't go to Starbucks. Starbucks? They sell them at Starbucks? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, we gotta... <laughs> Stop this. <laughs> Tony Abbott was really never a deeply popular figure among the electorate. Tony Abbott faced some hostility of his own. Good morning, sir. How are you? Oh, really? <laughs> and uh, really the reason why his prime ministership has crumbled is because he lost the support of the electorate and ultimately the governing Liberal uh, Party. This is not an easy so, day for many people in this building. Leadership changes are never easy for our country. The, the Prime Minister's not going to lose, he's going to win. The, the Prime Minister's not going to lose, he's going to win. Uh, my pledge today is to make this change as easy as I can. Goodbye, Tony. Bye-bye. Goodbye, Tony. Tony, time to go. Goodbye. Not from talking to bed. Bye-bye, Tony. Now we're going to our segment, The Week That Was, where we highlight some of the most notable or infamous stories from the past week. 
First up, Inter- International Women's Day happened this week with Indigenous feminist writer Celeste Little as keynote speaker. The speech, titled Looking Past White Australia and White Feminism, was republished in New Matilda and posted on Little's Facebook page. The speech is a powerful and nuanced look at feminism in Australia and its complicated and violent history. The article featured a picture of two naked Indigenous women as a header in a very traditional setting, and unsurprisingly, racists jumped to remove Little's presence from Facebook through Facebook's largely broken ban and report system over this supposedly nude, sexually explicit picture. Not only this, but New Matilda was also banned for the coverage. This is a news outlet with 38,000 followers, so it's not a small deal. So I've heard about this before, and a friend who I know who moderates a big political network, her name's Andrea. Hello. Hey. Hey. Hi there. I'm sorry about, like, the wait. (laughs) But basically... No, good. (laughs) I just wanted to talk about, I guess, because Celeste Little was um, banned from Facebook probably in the same way that you were banned on Facebook. I just wanted to talk about, like the process of being banned and, like, I guess how it works and how people can target you. She said this is a very common tactic. Basically, the the system, because there's several different ways you can be banned on Facebook. You can get banned for nude pictures or um, hate speech or abuse. But the way Facebook defines it is very strange, I guess. Yeah. With slurs, with slurs they've just taken a sort of hey, you've, you've said this word, therefore you'll get an automatic consequence. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter what context. What context um, have you been banned in, like, for example? Um, I was having a discussion about my background and how um, in the past it was a bit harder. So I was just mentioning how in primary school there was this kid who called... Um, pretty much every brown person in the class, uh, the N-word. Oh. And obviously I read it out. Yeah. I read it out. I didn't put any asterisks or anything like that. And what was interesting was I received a ban for it maybe a couple weeks afterwards. So Facebook essentially has an incredibly complicated path of ways of reporting. And its monitoring team is not limited to so-called nudes, but also includes a team for hate speech, a team for suicide prevention, and a team for abusive content. Sexually explicit images are sent to the abusive content team, which is why this makes this so strange that an image of Indigenous women in such a traditional setting could be skewed as one, sexually explicit, and two, abusive content. Facebook also has a two-strikes-and-you're-out rule, which means that Little should have received a warning before her ban. So why does it seem so easy to remove huge media outlets from being able to use Facebook, even with all this bureaucracy in place? Um, actually, the nudity one is uh, quite interesting because not only were people being banned for slurs, people were having random pictures reported for nudity, and these are pictures that have no naked people in them. Some Whoa. of them didn't have people in them. They were just objects. So most of them weren't banned because um, with nudity, they do have someone that goes through it. Mm-hmm. But they go through it really quickly, so it is possible. So you can get banned like for nudity even when there's no nudity? Well, you can get reported. Whenever you get a picture reported for nudity, Facebook uh-huh. tells you. Oh, yeah. So they tell you so you have the option to remove it first. Oh, okay. Um, so people weren't necessarily banned, but... Mm-hmm. You'll get, you can get reported for any picture. All right. So if, like, tons of people were to report you for, like, one picture that's 
they like didn't have nudity or clearly it wasn't sexually explicit nudity. Do the like yeah. do the reports like you sort of like rack up so that like you don't have the option to take it down because it's just like oh you violated the policy too many times. Um. Well, if you get reported, you should. They always give you. They tend to give you an option. Oh. It's like hey, this picture's being reported for nudity. Can you put? Would you like to remove it? And then if you don't remove it, then Facebook will have to actually assess it. Yeah. But um, I think our Facebook's nudity policy is a bit strange. Yeah. Um, like, they did recently say that pictures of women breastfe- breastfeeding don't break the, uh, what's it called, community standards. Yeah. Um, also, it's only really if you see the nipple. Yeah, that seems to be it. Right? Unless it has a nipple in there. Um, but I think, yeah, they have exceptions for breastfeeding or if you have, like, uh, mastectomy scarring. Oh, right. Okay. Like, they allow those. And also, like, paintings and oh. sculptures and art. Okay, so it's yeah. not, if it's not, like, a ph- photograph. Oh, that, these seem, like, almost arbitrary, though. Bless little, she has started, a, a like, a change.org petition. And she's got 8,000 signatures to, like, I guess have, like, more of a nuanced view of, like nudity do mm. you think that will have like any effect what i know is that there was issues of it in 2008 and 2012 mm-hmm. and basically people just sort of kept complaining to facebook about it because these were non-sexual images and yeah. um so it did cause facebook to change their policy mm-hmm. so I, I i wouldn't underestimate the ability for something like this to also change yeah. facebook's policy um, but you just have to be very clear about what you mean, I guess. Yeah. You have to be uh, specific, because otherwise if you just say, hey, why do we have nudity being in general? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why can't women's body... It it won't be something uh, concrete they can work on, but if you yeah. can say, hi, um, there are certain communities where women... Uh, people have, like, naked breasts. Mm. But it's non-sexual, it's not meant to be uh, provocative or anything like that and in these cases it's absurd to ban these women who are basically just existing what's going on people this is a carla and right now you're listening to the race card big up yeah i was just gonna say that um what is allowed to be in the public sphere and what is also allowed consequently to be in the online sphere is dictated by essentially the white gaze, the white male gaze. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't matter. Like, it can be your body. It can be somebody else's body. But if it does not fit into um, pandering and satisfying that gaze, then it shouldn't be on there. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much how a lot of these online platforms work. Even Facebook, very honestly. Even if you look at the people who do work on Facebook, they do do have a white male gaze. I mean, let's just face it. Their workforce is predominantly white men. Mm. Um, I think I read a report it was about 80%. Um, Which is also why this whole community standards thing has not been working. Like, how many times have you reported actually abusive content? And it it just stays put. You get the message that it didn't violate anything. Yeah. I mean, speaking of that, International Women's Day, I heard you had a interesting experience speaking with Casey Council, was it? Yeah, actually. Yeah. Would you be comfortable elaborating? <laughs> okay, sure. So what happened was, um, so on Thursday, which was two days after International Women's Day, I was asked to um, to speak um, on Muslim women in the West. And I did. And 
I also did something that the other speakers unfortunately didn't do, which is basically an acknowledgement of country and talk about indigenous women, talk about women of color, talk about agency of women of color, as well as internal and external resistance. And I feel like that has touched some nerves with some people (laughs) who were not very happy with the whole, um, you know, I'm a poor brown woman, please save me. I think that's what they were Mm. expecting. I think that's... um, they thought I was going to provide, and I didn't do that. And so at the end of the speech, this one woman who, who was from the council particularly, she approached me and basically attacked my English, saying that, um, you know, she told me that I was speaking fast. Okay, I, can, I, I get that. She told me that I wasn't speaking loud enough. Okay, that's, fa- that's valid. She made no comment of the content of my speech. And, um, yeah, that's a bit funny, but I didn't think too much about it. But then she went on to say that I needed ESL classes and elocution classes, which to me was a little bit funny because I thought I talked about very complex issues. Mm -hmm. And also I was asked to give a speech, you know, like I think whoever organized it had enough confidence in me that I could speak on this topic and I could speak on it clearly and properly. And by the way, she also compared the way how I was speaking to another white woman who was also on the panel who also gave a speech and i thought that was i mean at best it was a bit insulting yeah um it was one way to say stay in your place and Mm. don't talk out of line and that woman by the way she was presenting on um i mean there was nothing wrong what what her project was doing Her, her project was basically helping migrant refugee women um, you know, learn how to bank, um, learn how to make an income and things like that, which are all really great. But she was framing it from a perspective of um, a white savior gaze, mm, yeah. you know, like, oh, look at these poor girls. Um, they're finally entering the water swimming for the first time. And it's almost like patronizing. And that's mm. not what you really want. It's almost as if these little girls are puppies. I almost felt like asking which one's your favorite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, that's my experience. And very honestly, it's not the first time and uh, probably won't be the last. Did you feel like, I guess, in her saying, like, oh, do you want to take elocution classes? Like, I know a great teacher or whatever. That was her trying to fit you back into the white savior narrative. Like, basically, like, you need saving from me. Yeah, I think I think it was particularly her disgust at my agency. Mm. Like, I was basically not saying I I need your help. Yeah, I was I was saying something else. You know, I think that's what really got to people put more beautiful people of colour on TV and connect viewers in ways which transcend race and unite us. That's the real Team Australia. You know, you look at the American TV, British TV, it, you know, has, uh, you know, it's got shows with d- different nationalities and, 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 and not just putting nationalities just for the point of difference but creating work that caters for um, actors of different backgrounds. that line I see green fields and lovely flowers and beautiful white women with their arms stretched out to me over that line but I can't seem to get there no how I can't seem to get over that line that was Harriet Tubman in the 1800s and let me tell you something the only thing that separates women of color from anyone else is opportunity. You cannot win an Emmy for roles that are simply not there. 
So another week has passed and another thing has happened, as they do. Malcolm Turnbull's dinner with Victoria's peak Islamic body, Islamic Council Victoria, happened over the week. And what's got me kind of like uh, feeling a bit awkward about it is how it's been reported. And it's almost universally seen as like a change for Muslims and how they'll be treated by the government. You know, Malcolm Turnbull's our white knight coming to save us from his party. But what I want to just ask is, where was this talk when Tony Abbott was talking about Team Australia? Where was Malcolm then? When the extra powers were given to ASIO and AFP, where was Malcolm then? When government approved policy to track young Muslim children in schools, where was Malcolm then? Well, you know where he was? Nowhere. He was silent. He was keeping to himself, planning his coup to become the next prime minister. That's what he was doing. So this politicking that he's doing ahead of an election seems dubious and disingenuous. Because, you know, he doesn't really care about Muslims. He just cares about being re-elected. He cares about um, power. Because what has his dinner done for Muslims? What has that achieved? Has he said that he's going to change anything? Has he offered up any solutions? Always talking about, like, we've got to be peaceful. We've got to do, th- you know, like, just open, like, just, like, words that have no kind of meaning. Yeah. What did he do at the dinner? Sorry, like, just, was he just there? He was just, th- he was just at the dinner and just, like, talking to a group of Muslims from ICV. And what what kind of troubles me is that, you know, ICB have been vocal about, you know, like, the rhetoric by the government before. I just wanted them to be more critical. I mm. wanted the people, like, have them come there. But, like, actually, you know, like, so what are you going to do differently? Tell us what you're doing. Yeah. Well, don't, don't just, like, I feel like you gave in too easily. Now he just expects you to just follow along whatever he says. Now you've not actually been critical. You've not gone to him and said, hey, um... Just because you're being a bit nicer on the surface doesn't change the way your government and party treated us for so long. You know what I mean? It's just like it's just it's like giving up at the first mm-hmm. sign of like kindness. And like what got me was like there was you know there was just kind of like pieces in publications like um, with with like words like Turnbull's message to Muslims, the words we've been yearning to hear. Well. Huh? You know what I mean? Like, he's, what? He, like, just saying, like, Turnbull's message to Muslims, the words we've been yearning to hear, just like, just him talking to us. Who is we? Like, See, what? So uh, that, that was a that was a that was a um, op-ed written by this Muslim woman who I think went to the dinner. But like, just because he said, "Hey, you know, oh, I think we got to be more inclusive," but like, show us actions. Mm. Why don't you cut up some policies that have been put into Parliament? But there's nothing. It's just like words, open, just like empty gestures. Right. I think this is a case of um, privileged people getting claps when they're giving you scraps. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So basically, there's this, I feel like Muslim people, especially in this, I mean, not to say everyone's the same, but a lot of Muslim people are out there who are ready to be grateful for their presence, like for just for, you know, a party member visiting their mosque. They're so happy. Just because someone turns up for your dinner, they're so happy. And it's like, yeah, okay, on a symbolic level, maybe that is good. But let's look beyond that. You know, it's it goes beyond 
your prime minister attending um, your ICV dinner? And what else? Is, is that all you're going to ask from him? I mean, are you not going to ask about the violence that inflicted on Muslim youth? Are you not going to ask about the violent rhetoric that is being used right now? Is that all you're going to ask of him to sit in your dinner table? And I think that's, I think we have this respectability issues going on where some of us still feel like as long as we root out the bad apples, and yeah, fine, that might be a fair comment, but the procedures that go in place of doing that, I feel is rooted in so many problematic discourses. Because it's, it's, it's racially profiled. And that's the thing. Right. Ultimately, when people think about these new laws that ASIO or AFP have, they're not going to be targeting, you know, like, you know, like white people that happen to have, like, right-wing ties to organizations and et cetera, et cetera. They're not for Oklahoma Australia. These, these are not right. for Oklahoma Australia or, or kind of, like, like right extremist groups like that. They're, they're just for, you know, Muslim. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST that might be this thing like this idea like how do you know what they're doing you know what I mean like I remember at school there would be kids at my class like these these kids are like 14 13 years old and it got to a point because they had prominent um, fathers and, and and mothers in kind of like like Muslim circles that were sheikhs and and kind of teachers and preachers in that sense Asia would routinely check their houses mm. and Obviously, every single time they did, they would be like, the, the parents would be like, go oh, check, 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 see what you want to do, whatever. And it got to a point that it became so prevalent. One of our teachers started te- telling students what to do when these um, officers and, and agency people come to their house. And he's had this done to him himself. So he's just like saying, open the door, be respectful, mm-hmm. and just let them in, whatever it is. Like, And, and this thing, why does 13, 14-year-olds need to deal with that like right. it's like you're, you're you're trying to you're making these people um f- go into adulthood much more mm. like much earlier than they have to and i also feel like again it's still part of respectability right this whole idea of just as long as you're nice just as long as you're dressing well as long as you're addressing them well as long as you're being polite they're not going to do anything bad to you well guess what there's a bunch of people who do exactly just that and they're still met with violence you know what i mean i think if people I mean, if people in power and if, if the authorities in power have an agenda where they already are convinced that you are guilty, it does not matter what you are doing. They will still come and perpetrate violence against you. You know what I mean? Like this whole idea. I think it's just a facade to give people security that as long as they are, you know, playing into the good Muslim narrative, they'll be fine. But I don't know how how much protection that will afford you. Or it might afford you protection it'll run out eventually. Now with AFP and ASIO's powers, people can literally be imprisoned for no reason and that can be okay. And that'll just be, they can be in remand um, X period of time without actually having a reason for that. And that's happened to people, I'm pretty sure that happened to um, this boy called Harun, I forget his last name. Um, and he was eventually charged with something very, like a misdemeanor, like 
possession of of a weapon and that's like six months in prison and they couldn't find any kind of like terrorist leanings or anything like that mm. so he was in like the maximum prison he's i think 17 years old maximum prison 17 yeah. year old uh and that's gonna change his life so th- that's yeah. the thing right so malcolm turnbull where were you then I Again. also I'm also curious how much of this, you know, ex- exaggerated violence on youth um or on people who are falsely charged or falsely accused. How much of that is just to show, just to show people that we are tough on crime. We are mm-hmm. tough on people. We're tough on these people, not yeah. just any people. We're tough on them. I don't know how much of it is a performance on the part of the authorities and how much of it is actually genuine. And that, for me, is actually kind of scary because, again, if they do have an agenda that they want to follow through, they don't really care whether you're innocent or not. They just want someone who will fit the bill. Uh, they will make you fit the bill. Like They'll just change the narrative around you. And... Um, whatever takes place takes place and you don't really have much control over that 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 to me is very scary there was a scary uh, moment um in making a murderer uh that the, the show where one of the uh defense attorneys is like you you can know that you probably won't commit a murder or commit a crime but you never know if you might be accused of one and that's mm. the scariest bit of what i when i heard that i was like wow that is, because like you, you never know. You can be accused of something. I'm banning all rap this year at the awards. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I love hip hop, obviously, but tonight it's all about soul. Okay, hold on a second. I got another call. Wait a minute. No, honestly, man, you are my favorite artist out right now. But I ain't letting anybody in with no littles and youngs and their name. Yeah. Hang on one second. I'm sorry, y'all. Uh, yes. Who is this? Iggy Azalea. Yeah, hey. Oh, no, 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 no. You can come, because what you're doing is definitely not rap. Yeah. Yeah, I got on my overalls. Yeah. In fact, I'm going to send an Uber for you right now. Yeah, come on, be outside. A feature this week is on Mardi Gras, its history, and I guess what it means present day. Uh... Amina Ziad has the story. So, Amina, what's up? So, the Sydney Mardi Gras first started in 1978, which was fashioned after the Stonewall riots. And when it happened in Sydney, it was actually marked with police violence. 1,500 people were diverted from Darlinghurst Road to a which was closed off by police, who then swooped in and arrested 53 people, many who were beaten in cells. And over the following months, there were several marches and arrests um, that continued, and police violence was then expected. Okay, so that was like 40 years ago, yeah? Yeah, that 40, was about 38. Years ago. So 
like I'm assuming things changed. What what happened this year? So this year, um, it was a, a far more commercial backdrop. Um, so when we're talking about the past, the past was obviously more of a protest type of mm. feel, and obviously pride. But pro- pride does not exist without the protest. Yeah. And this year, um, it's a lot more commercial. We're seeing people like the police. We're seeing corporate corporates that once um, met with violence with the protesters Mm -hmm. are now marching we have authorities who are also marching and that's what's different and i think this is um the first time or the first in a long time i'm not too sure where uh australian government a prime minister has basically attended the march oh so this is like the first time in a long time yeah oh okay but also like this isn't just any prime minister this is a prime minister who's instituting um, potentially defunding state school, uh, safe schools, like, um, which is kind of like affecting young LGBTQI students as well. So. Right. And also, you know, this whole idea of just showing up, mm. you know, again, yeah. getting claps when you're getting scraps. Mm-hmm. You know, you're giving claps when you're getting scraps, rather, sorry. Yeah, especially like a white, incredibly privileged, straight man who doesn't want us to marry and doesn't want our kids to be safe coming in and getting claps is you know it's not even just scraps this is opposite of scraps this is not any any food it's like they're taking away our food and he's getting claps it doesn't make sense but yeah so what what, so obviously what happened over the weekend so there was one incident in particular that caught my eye and that was the australian labor float And right behind that was the no pride in detention float. Mm -hmm. And what had happened was um, the Australian labor float, um, they basically registered discomfort. And as a result, the no pride in detention float was pushed back further into the parade. So So they actually had to get, um, yeah, their place in the parade had to get pushed back. Just quickly, what's no pride in detention? So no pride in detention was a float of about 100 people and um, they were protesting um, LGBT refugees in detention, basically. Um, so, you know, we can march as much as we want. We can march freely here. But there are people in detention who can't join us in that parade. And mm-hmm. there is no point in, you know, fighting for freedom when we're all not free. You mm-hmm. know, and whose freedom are you fighting for? So I've been looking around for people who are part of this no pride in detention float. Hello? Hi. Hi, this is Amina. Yeah, this is Amina. So I spoke to Mason Wang about Mason's part in the No Pride Attention Float. I was part of the, like, we had over 100 members, right. um, and we basically protested um, LGBTQI refugees in detention. And what is the, sig- the significance of your presence as a float as part of the march? Um... It's just that historically the Mardi Gras has always been, um, well, not always. It's like become more about the spectacle in recent years. But historically, the Mardi Gras was always a protest um, event rather than, you know, just about fun and like, you know, guys and short shorts. Um, And I guess what we wanted to do was to reclaim the Mardi Gras, like to make it all about protest again, like, you know, you've got an like government and an opposition that talks about how much they support LGBTQI people, but then you think about like all of the atrocities that are happening on Nauru and um, Manus Island, and 
it's just like, well, where's the, where's the justice for these LGBTQI people? Members of the Australian Labour float cited discomfort, but Mason saw no provocation for that. What happened was, it, it wasn't like, I'm not sure why there was like cause for discomfort. Right. Like, okay, I can understand that like maybe Labour didn't want to be like, because it's a bad look for Labour. Like, obviously, they know that their policies are unjust and um, putting young kids in jail. But, like, it just sort of um, sort of showed them up. Um, All right, so Mason's basically saying that Labour didn't want to, like, be confronted by the fact that their, like, policies are really hypocritical to the standpoint at the parade. So... I mean, like, I guess, is that, like, a reason to move a float? I don't think it's, like, a reason. Like, I would have... Because of, like, oh, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of political expression. I would have thought, like, they would have been allowed to stay. Especially because... Were they, were they being physical? Were they being physical? No, actually. Um, I think what happened was the Labour float were confronted by the realization that their support for LGBT people are actually conditional. Mm. And I think that's actually what's, what happened. I mean, like, do we think that, like, this was the first time that anyone in Labour and Bill Shorten was like, oh, man, I didn't realize there were gays in, like, detention? Or do we think that, like, you know, this was, like, like a long-standing fear, like, that, oh, if we go to this parade, we're going to have to face protesters on this reason? So there were accusations of violence perpetrated by the No Pride Attention Float. So um, if you've seen some of the statements that have come out from the Mardi Gras police and stuff, they've all been like, oh, we had to like remove the um, No Pride Attention Float because they were like threatening to like incite violence and stuff against Bill Shorten. Um, but... Like, I was there and there was nothing of that kind. People just sort of, like, stood behind um, Bill Shorten. Like, at the end of a press conference, um, and people just started, shout, like, chanting, we're here, we're queer, refugees are welcome here. So, so, when, so when I heard about that, I thought, you know, I, I'm going to go and figure out what the hell happened, you know what I mean? Especially when The Guardian republished the video that went viral about um, organiser Anthony Russell screaming at the face of a protester. Uh, and I thought, you know, I'm going to try to track down that specific protester. Did you get him? I think I did. Uh, <laughs> Name is Ed McMahon um, from Sydney. Hello, how are you going? <laughs> I don't really know what to say. So that's Ed. And, you know, he, he told me about how he felt about being confronted. Yeah, I was actually really, like, I went into um, quite a sort of anxious um, sort of space I needed to just after the confrontation I just needed to take space and sit down because the parade itself is very stressful like when you're organizing a float um we had like 140 participants um it was a whole like there were weeks of preparation and the day itself was just running around and then you're waiting there before the parade there's lots of loud music lots of lights lots of activity you're stressed about whether everything's going to go okay um the very fact that the head producer of the parade comes up to you as just like a community organiser um, is itself daunting. But when they sort of stick their finger in your face and start yelling at you and using expletives and they write in your personal space, um, it, it's like very intimidating. And somebody in a position of authority and power 
um, you know, backed by major corporate sponsors and um, at the request of the opposition leader of the country. Like, it, it, yeah, it was very intimidating for a long time and I felt very vulnerable. The Sydney Mardi Gras, which is now a world-famous Australian spectacle known for its festivities, is obviously veering away from its origins, and Mason seems to agree with that. Personally, I feel like the Mardi Gras has become more corporatized, and it's all about, I guess, the, like, image and public relations. Um, And obviously, like, I can understand that it's a huge thing to have both Malcolm Turnbull um, and Bill Shorten show up at the Mardi Gras, like it's the first time that a prime minister and the opposition has done that. Um, And I guess the Mardi Gras didn't want to jeopardize that, which I totally understand. But we need to like, you know, take into mind that like Mardi Gras is not about like the image. It's not about looking good. It's not about, it's like in a way it's become quite politically correct. And it's never been about that. It's all about, like, you know, going against flow and, like, speaking up about LGBTQI issues and, like, you know, the problems in society. Like, Mm. yeah, it's just that, um, like, in regards to your question, who's being prioritised, it's become quite, I guess, hypersexualized and, um, I guess, quite, I guess, like, exclusive of, like, people of colour. And... Yeah, that's just being demonstrated here with, um, like, even though there were floats that made fun of Julie Bishop um, and her helicopter, like, they they weren't removed just because, like, it wasn't, like, it was quite a, I guess, accepted stance. Right. Whereas this was, like, all about, you know, accepting, like, um, refugees who are, like, mostly people of colour and... um, just shows how, I guess, whitewashed the um, Mardi Gras has become in the recent years. And I, I don't think Mason's alone in thinking that, because uh, when I spoke to Ed, he was kind of you know, very um, hard and fast about how he feels the Mardi Gras has changed and how people like Bill Shorten were able to eject a float that were trying to say no pride in detention for um, queer people in, in, in detention centres. So I guess what I'm saying is Mardi Gras sort of become platformed by the political establishment to legitimise itself, um, which is, of course is a complete transformation from its original um, protest nature in 1978. Um, it's gone from a protest parade where the police attempted to shut it down to a protest parade where it's used as a platform to celebrate how great and inclusive the police force is of um, queer folk. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, uh, in terms of, like, corporatization in general, like, the queer movement is always corporatized. Like, we have, like, those gay and said ATMs and, like, stuff like that. But it seems like a float like No Pride in Detention is just so, like, inexplicably different from what was surrounding it. I mean, refugees pretty much have no access to the things that, the, like, a large corporation would, so... I just wonder whether that would have affected their message at the parade. Yeah, because, like, I feel like they... What what kind of struck me was how people reacted to that because this is in stark contrast to anything that was happening at Mardi Gras because mm. everyone's like, ooh, corporations are cool with queer people now and it's, like, become a big fun festivity kind of thing and that's cool. Um, and And these activists were trying to say... 
All right, we can have fun, but let's also recognize what's going on in tension centers. Mm. I feel like that just got too real, and I think Mason said something to the like to that to that effect as well. There are people in detention who are LGBTQIA plus. Like, um, it's just that like we felt that our float was important because of the uh, I guess the plight of um, there are these two gay refugees in detention. They're called Nima and Ashkin. And basically, um, basically, you can use like your LGBTQI status as a way of seeking refuge in another country because they were being prosecuted for that in their own country. Um, but it's a catch twenty two because they can't like you know write it down on their documentation because um, being gay is illegal in um, in Papua New Guinea, and you know they've been beaten, they've been um, like, you know, threatened to be incarcerated for that in Papua New Guinea. And, yeah, like, it's about LGBTQI rights. And if we want to talk about LGBTQI rights, we're not going to discriminate between, you know, like, rich, white, um, like, you know, middle-class people and um, people of colour who might have come from, you know, a more conservative country. That was that. Like I felt very taken aback by that because normally you don't have the names for the people. They become statistics, just Mm -hmm. numbers. And now we know of two peoples, their name, um, but how who they are in that sense, and and how difficult it must be for for refugees and asylum seekers who are queer and and seeking asylum on the basis of being persecuted for their sexuality. Like how, like like Mason says, how can you write that on a piece of paper? Because you're afraid that the state mm. that you're in is going to um, persecute you for for being for being queer. Right, and I think it also feeds into the whole erasure of people mm. of color uh, in being queer. Um, unfortunately, they do it out of you know out of safety reasons. And uh, because there are very violent repercussions to that if they do come out and do request to seek asylum on that basis. Oh, this is so, I just think it's like really interesting because corporations have a legal identity and in Australia, refugees don't. Like, it's just something about like how there's, we attribute more like legal humanity to these huge floats for like ANZ and we attribute no humanity to these refugees and they can't even say their names because obviously they're fearing like terrible things to happen in their home countries but also to be like outed in Australia like you don't want to be outed as a refugee in Australia because it's like a terrible thing here to be like it's a horrible thing to be here but it's like you can't even get here in the first place it just there's just so much that like well but do you know what do you know what I find um like just 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 stuck in the sense is that you could have an ANZ fl- uh, flow and that would have no issue. There'd be yeah. no issue with the ANZ flow. But this pride in, uh, in detention, no pride in detention flow was so fought out of. Like, people just didn't want this flow to exist. And that, mm. that got me. And I think it's also very telling when queer people mm. are setting up for other queer people. Queer people are um, exercising agency over issues that matter to them. And that is given less precedence over a show and a symbolism yeah. of solidarity, of mm-hmm. supposed solidarity. You know, it's almost like these quote and unquote 
allies <laughs> get more of a benefit in these marches than those who are queer themselves. Super story, Amina. Thanks for for bringing that to us. Um, and we're, we're we're gonna we're gonna say goodbye this week. Um, that was our show. Uh, big thanks to to uh, to Mason and Ed for helping us out. Uh, and big thanks to Amina for for bringing to us that story and a bit of history about Mardi Gras and what it means. Uh, you can you know find us on iTunes, Acast, and tons of other places. Find us on Twitter at RaceCardPod. Um, you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash RaceCardShow. Find us on our website, RaceCardPodcast.com. And our Tumblr, which is done by the incredible Arundhati. Yay! <laughs> uh, um, RaceCardPodcast.tumblr.com. Tons of really cool things. Things that we talk about, things that are happening in the news. Um, find it all at Tumblr and all our other social media platforms. Um, you can find me at Ahmed Yusuf10. You can find me at Arundhati with two A's at the start. And I'm pretty sure, Mina, they can find you as well now. Yeah, so as of yesterday, I do have a Twitter <laughs> account. And it is Amina, A-M-E-N-A-Z-I-A-R-D. So no spaces, put it all together. That's my Twitter. Boom. All right. That's uh, me saying goodbye. Thank you for listening. And you're listening to The Race Code. Bye. Okay, now we're going into our new segment. Oh, actually, I need the Dada music. <laughs> da 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 it's going to be really loud. Well. Clearly not. <laughs> I need it to be a little bit lower than that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's good. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 